Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh delivers a message from the book of Philippians. In this sermon, we are reminded of our mission and purpose as believers. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Gospel-Centered, Mission-Minded Ministry. jump into a number of passages today, but we'll begin in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Little break from the book of Romans this morning, and here's the reason uh, and the subject. Uh, We determined that at uh, certain moments uh, in the process of this building project, on certain kind of critical days, we would take some time and just sort of look at some truths from the Bible that pertain specifically to what we're doing to help our thinking. The number of errors we can have um, in our thoughts about everything are multitudes and particularly sometimes churches get in a bit of confusion and ends up leading to some conflict when there is misunderstanding about the purpose and about some of the truths even that really just kind of go along with it. (coughs) Maybe you've kind of heard some thoughts in the past. Maybe you were a part of a church building project and maybe somewhere in a meeting Someone stood up and said, some variation of this, you know, we really need to take this seriously, you know, just as serious as they did in the Old Testament whenever they built the temple. Because, I mean, we're building the house of God. And, you know, we really need to maybe probably stop giving to missions for a little while because this is about the house of God. And really what that is is a misunderstanding of the scriptures. This building right here or any other we may ever construct is not the house of God. This building will one day be in ashes and the house of God will worship before the throne of God. No, missions is building the house of God by souls coming to faith in Christ. All kinds of different thoughts that can be out there. Sometimes folks in kind of a going out of building project might say something like, You know, we need to make this amazing. And I know that the debt that I'm proposing is like really big. But hey, we just got to have faith. Just got to have faith that God's going to come through for us. Which is a misunderstanding of faith. Faith is not telling God what we're going to do and saying, hey, you better get on our program. Faith is us responding to what God has told us to do. But the point is, all of these kinds of confusions can all be answered by the scriptures. And so occasionally, as we go through this, we want to we wanna come and do a bit of a topical study, which is not our regular diet here. Um, we believe that the regular diet of the church is to be the systematic, uh, what is often called expositional preaching and study through the scriptures. But we believe it is occasionally helpful to have a doctrinal study or a topical study. And so here's a central idea statement from the beginning. The greatest determining factor of churches honoring God and being wise through building projects is the issue of perspective. And again and again, placing the main things as the main things and seeing everything in light of its proper priority. And so to do that this morning, here's here's what we're going to do is kind of how we're going to spend our time. I'm going to take us on a bit of a uh, flyover tour of the book of Philippians. Now, why, why this book? Why Philippians? Well, all of the Bible is tied together by its one central message. God in Christ redeeming a people to himself for his glory. And every book of the Bible in some way gives truths that we need that all connect to that. But all the books of the Bible kind of give us some uh, various parts. So for instance, if you came to me and said you wanted to know some more about the theology of suffering, uh, one of the places I would send you is the book of 2 Corinthians. Not because that's the only thing it talks about, but it's a major theme and a major part of that. The book of Philippians is one place that really addresses our perspective in this world. 
the way that we look at all things, the, having that eternal perspective while living in a temporary world. So jet tour of the book of Philippians and then kind of towards the end, we'll bring some applications from what we looked at. So let's begin by reading Philippians 2, 2, and then I'll pray for us. Scripture reads, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, Father, we hum humbly come before your throne and we ask, oh God, please give us understanding. You have already spoken in your word. But God, we ask that in a, a new and fresh way, Lord, you'll breathe life into us, oh God, as you give us understanding of what you have spoken. Your word will never be empty, never return to you without accomplishing your purposes. So Lord, it's what we beg this morning that you will please work in this time. So God, we're a group. There is in this room right now, sons and daughters. I'm sure there must also be some that are not yet in connection with Christ. But Lord, we're a group of sons and daughters that have gathered together to meet and draw near and we want to please you. We want your name to be glorified. We want to grow in holiness, grow in knowledge of your scriptures, but deeper than that, grow in the knowledge of Christ and make our lives useful. So God, we pray, this is what you want. You show us this in your word. This is your will. So we ask, oh God, accomplish that this morning. Father, every place where we need convicted, please bring it. Every place that we need encouraged, every place we need instructed and corrected, please bring it, oh God. Lord, and all the help that I'm gonna need to um, just deliver the food that you've prepared to your people, please help me to do it and not to say unhelpful things, but only what is helpful, please. Lord, make me useful and make this time to be beneficial for your glory. Save those who need saving, oh God, we pray. For your glory, we ask this through Christ. Amen. Johnny Erickson Tata tells the story of one of her trips to Africa where she met with the believers of a church. This particular church was comprised of disabled, blind, lame, those who crawled on their elbows because of missing limbs, crawled on their elbows in order to come and attend the worship service, many of whom lived on the streets. There's a pastor there who's made it his mission that he travels the streets and finds the disabled and the lame and tells them the message of Christ. This is in a place where there is no system to care for them. There is no welfare. There is no source of income. This is a place where these who are disabled live on the garbage thrown out by other impoverished families, oftentimes crawling on their elbows to get to the garbage. And for that reason, they often do not live long. But this pastor travels the streets, finds those in need, shares the message of salvation in Christ with them, calls them to come and have forgiveness of sins by trusting in Christ. And those who believe regularly gathers them together in a canvas tent on a sidewalk and there they worship. She visited this church and described the tears of joy as these believers prayed and sang and thanked God for his many blessings, most especially for the gift of salvation. She describes those missing limbs dancing in joy of celebration of the grace of God. I hear that story and a lot of things in life are put in a more helpful perspective. I see the pictures and the videos that come out of the Philippines where church families gather together in a concrete block building, but because it is the rainy season there, their church building is flooded up to their knees. And they have to hold their children to keep them out of the water. 
But all the while they close their eyes in sweet worship, magnifying the name of Christ. I see that and my perspective is helped. It's so easy for us to get distracted living in the land of plenty. In fact, it doesn't take any effort at all. We will just very naturally drift into a possession-centered, comfort-driven mode of living just automatically. We actually have to apply energy to swim against the current to keep from that happening and to see what the real purpose of reality is. The theme of the book of Philippians helps us with that. The theme of the book of Philippians can be summed up in just four words. Rejoice in the Lord. But a little bit more explanation is helpful with that. What we're told is that what we have in Christ, so if you are here this morning and you have heard the message of the gospel that you must be saved, you've heard that the only answer for your eternal life, for your sins, forgiveness is Christ, and you have turned to him looking to be saved, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, then if you are in him, attached to him, what we have in Christ is so great. There is a glorious joy, an inheritance of God's people that is coming to all who are in Christ. So what that means is that even now we can begin to experience that joy of what is to come. Not because we're there yet, but because scripture shows us what is to come. And even through suffering, even through pain, God has given a way for us to have peace and joy in looking at the hope that we have. This hope is so rich. The gospel that has saved us is so wonderful that we are called to give effort and even suffer for the sake of making the gospel known. And that even while we suffer, there is a hope available to us of sweet joy. When Paul writes this letter, many of you know the context of this book. He sits in a moldy, dark, stone-laid prison. His back has been lacerated open by the beating, the lashes that he has just taken, quite possibly to the point that in spots, ribs are exposed from the lashes he's just received. And yet from the depths of the prison, he sings in worship, tells the gospel to the prison guards, some of them get saved, and writes letters to the churches telling them to rejoice in Christ. His joy is built on the hope of the glory to come and that inspires his heart to joy. But but then also catch this as well. It inspires his heart to zeal even now for the gospel. And he writes to believers and invites us to join in that joy and that zeal of the desire to make the name of Christ known, more souls to enter the kingdom and be saved and for God to be magnified. That's the theme of the letter. It's a perspective changer. So let me walk us through four passages here uh, through the book of Philippians. Remember, it's just a, a jet tour quickly. So let me show you four passages throughout this letter that if we understand what's going on here, we'll understand the theme of what's happening. And then at the end, we're going to try to bring some application for us. So here's the first passage I want to take you to. In chapter one, find verse five, and I'm going to connect several verses here kind of in the beginning, but just sort of follow along with the theme of the letter here. Chapter one, Look at verse five. Uh, He's just finished telling them that he prays for them. And every time he prays for them, he has great gratitude for this church. Why is that? Well, verse five, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Jump down to verse 12 as he continues. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment 
have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Jump down to verse 18 as he kind of finishes that thought there. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in this I will rejoice. So what's he talking about there? Well, in that one verse there, he mentioned uh, my circumstances have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The circumstances he's referring to there are this beating he's just taken again, the imprisonment he's in again, but also in the fact that in this imprisonment, he faces the real possibility that this could be his last one that possibly the death sentence could be passed on him on this imprisonment right here. And as he thinks of that, he says, I rejoice because my circumstances have turned out to help the cause of the message of Christ going out further. I always have to wonder if you or I were given a pen and paper from the same prison with the same blood on our backs, having taken the same beating, what our letters would sound like. I say that with great conviction because I've got a pretty good guess. But what Paul, inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit, what he cannot wait to get to is to show the believers he writes to how these circumstances have been used by God. God's always bringing good in every circumstance, but sometimes that good is our humbling and we don't really see anything of the earth that seems to be good out of it. But what Paul is saying here is my circumstances, my pain, my beating, my suffering has led to the church growing, has led to the kingdom of God expanding. How? How has it led to the furtherance of the gospel? It's in the same way that whenever you read the biographies of uh, martyrs and missionaries, because you do, right? Okay. Whenever you read those biographies of martyrs and missionaries, and there's that chill that runs up your spine. Whenever you read about some of these guys that it emboldens you and it stirs you to zeal. And then that very next day you go share the gospel because you've been stirred and motivated. I want, I want to imitate this, that kind of thing. What Paul says is as the news of his beating, imprisonment, and yet preaching Christ happened, what this stirred was believers heard of this and they had that chill run up their spine and they began to get bold in sharing the gospel. The workers and laborers for uh, the sharing the message of Christ have multiplied because they're hearing of his story. And so rather than pity himself, rather than wallow in the pain of his circumstances, his thoughts are consumed with joy in how it has been used of God to multiply laborers. He says a phrase in 1 Corinthians 9, that becomes the motto of his life and we are to adopt as our motto as well. All things for the sake of the gospel. What excited Paul was the fact that his difficulties were being used to benefit the kingdom. Listen, rather than view his circumstances as tragedy or feel, far, feel sorry for himself, he saw his greatest desires being fulfilled. You know, the reason why we count certain circumstances tragic is whenever it keeps us from our great goals. Let, let that sink in for a second. If the thing you live for is popularity, then something like an embarrassing photo getting posted will be tragic to you. If you live for money, then losing a lucrative job will be tragic to you. Whatever you live for, whatever it is that keeps you from that thing which you are living for, that's what you count as tragic. And what we see the perspective that scripture gives is, is that for the believer, every earthly circumstance that we will endure, be it pain, be it suffering, the loss of family, the loss of friends, the loss of jobs, or the loss of life is not tragedy in the end because we have Christ. And in Christ, we have that which is infinitely good. But what we struggle with sometimes is getting my mind and my heart to be there. What we struggle with a lot of times is having Christ, but loving things of the earth and counting what keeps me from them as tragedy. When what scripture is constantly calling us to is fix our hope 
fix our joy entirely on the glory that is to be revealed to us in Christ. And then Jesus said, they'll kill you, but not a hair of your head will perish. Meaning they may take your life, but it's not tragedy because of what you have. We're invited into that joy. We're invited into that hope. In fact, it's stated stronger in scripture. You're commanded in. We're commanded to come and get our thinking and our affections and our loves aligned with the hope that we have. We need this kind of language to get into our bloodstream. We need this kind of language to become a regular way that we think about the world, rejoicing in the furtherance of the gospel. Well, here's a second passage still in chapter one there. Look at verse 21. Look what he says. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, meaning death, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Do you see what he's saying there? He says, I want to be with Christ so much that death seems sweet to me. But I also want to stay here. Not because he's trying to build some earthly kingdom or live for indulgence or pleasure. But he says, if I stay here, I want to serve. I want to be useful. I want God to be glorified. If I stay here, then that means that's more time, more influence, more opportunities that I can help souls come into the kingdom. I can help God's people grow to maturity in Christ. And so this is what I ultimately want. How different from where we were in the flesh and where God is bringing us along in this sanctification. Here's a little bit of a way, here's a little bit of a measure to know um, some, of, some of our growth in Christ. So where you are in the growth and maturity of thinking. One of the places of growth is you begin to want heaven. You begin to want the kingdom to come. And then it's a place of further growth. When we begin to long for heaven more than we want to be here. And then it's a place of further growth. When like Romans 8 says, we begin to groan. Like day by day, we begin to think throughout the day, oh, how sweet it will be to be in that place. But I think Paul reached a level that was even past that. A place where he groaned and longed for the age to come, for that new creation, but... He saw this life as opportunity for the kingdom. And so even though he wanted to be there bad, he said, I've got work to do here, souls to bring into the kingdom. So I want to stay and I want to work for this. Friends, whenever we begin to see life in terms of how we contribute to the kingdom of God, rather than how we can build our own little kingdom of possessions and comfort here, the perspective of scripture is having its effect on us. It's molding the way we see all things. Well, here's a third passage, one we'll spend a little bit more time on. Jump down to verse 27 of chapter one still. Look and see what he says. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So there's a big statement. That's its own subject and could be lived out. Like there's the call to put to death every sin. There's the call to progress in every character and to strive for holiness, live a life worthy of the gospel. But he has a really specific area that he's going to bring application to. So keep following along. He kind of jumps into a little bit of a sub point there. Paul is king of the sub points. If you ever read what he writes there. So verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together. You see how you just said that three ways? Striving together for what? For the faith of the gospel. Then jump down to chapter two, verse two, which is where we began. So this thought is connected. Verse two, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So notice how the teaching is building here. The call that's being given here is to unity. 
the call is for the church not to be divided, for there to be fellowship and sweet fellowship, for there to be love for one another, for service of one another to be a part of our regular lifestyle, care for one another to be present in every believer's heart towards every other believer globally and locally, a desire for one another's good, unity. But don't miss the rest of what he says. See, this is always where the, where the world wants to steal from the Bible, but they always mess it up. Like they, they always want to grab these kinds of sections, but they always get it wrong and can't figure it out. It's because there's something deeper meant here. We here are not called to unity merely for unity's sake. Now, I want you to understand and don't misunderstand. We do long for there to be world unity. We, we want that world peace. We would love that. But the Bible shows that there cannot be. In this age right now, there can't be. You cannot have unity with the world so long as there is rejection of God, blaspheming of his name, and resistance to the rule of God that's present and prevalent in the world. We're actually as Christians forbidden from having unity with that. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 actually commands believers do not have heart-linked fellowship with those who are rejecting God and in a movement of resistance to him. Now listen, that doesn't mean not be kind and not care for others who are in the world. That doesn't give excuses for Christians to go into the world and scowl at everybody around. No, we are to love, we are to serve, we are to show care and all of this, but you cannot have heart-linked unity with those who hate God. We're forbidden from it. The call here is not just to unity by itself so we all get together and sing kumbaya. Satanists can have unity. Human traffickers can have unity. But it's unity revolving around their agenda that is evil. Friends, we as the people of God, we as the redeemed of Christ, the disciples of Jesus globally, and then the church family of God locally are called to have a unity revolving around. Well, look what the text says. How, how does it say it? Intent on one purpose. There is something that is to give us unity. Intent on one purpose. What is that one purpose? It's the subject of all the Bible and all the book of Philippians. He just explained it. Look, look back at chapter 1, verse 27 again. Let's see how he shows it. Whether I come and see you or remain absent, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, what? For the faith of the gospel. What's the one purpose? What's the one spirit? If we're to be one-minded, then what is that thought? What is that agreement that is supposed to unite us. It's the purpose that defines the meaning of the cosmos. It's the storyline that explains all of history. It's the central message of the Bible and the Bible is the explanation of reality. So it's the defining message that ties all of the cosmos together, the gospel. It's the mission. It's the chief end of man. Glorify God and enjoy him forever by us personally living lives that honor and love and worship and obey him. And a massive part of that command, a massive part of the calling that you and I as Christians have been given is to go and make disciples of all the nations, raising them up, teaching them up to go and make disciples. The mission, be a disciple, make disciples. You can define the Christian life in that way. Be a disciple, grow in Christ, come to know him, come to love him, make disciples, help others come to do the same. That's our mission. Friends, that's what all of the universe is designed for. That's the end of where all of history is going. That all of those bought by the blood of Christ are one day gathered together around the throne of God and forever live in fellowship with him. It's all about the cosmos seeing who he is and celebrating his worth, and that happens. It's important that we see this connection. 
that happens as the message of Christ is told, preached, written, explained as you go to work tomorrow and share the gospel, have a conversation with a coworker about following Christ and you help them to see this is the gospel going forth and the name of Jesus being exalted. The purpose that unites us is the one purpose that everything is about, the gospel. And that's why this phrase is used in scripture, all things for the sake of the gospel. So God calls the church to unity, globally and locally. But the root of the unity, the agreed upon purpose that unites us is this work. And all of us understanding the purpose will be how we get unity. Uh, Understand this. This this is is where sometimes churches can start to see division and disunity start to happen. For us to have unity... We all have to agree on the main point. There will be, bank on it, we be humans, there will be disagreement about details. And that can be okay. We can still have unity, even not seeing eye to eye on some details. But we have to have agreement on the purpose, on that which unites us. And we have to see it rightly in scripture. Because let me tell you another place where churches can kind of start to get off. We have to see what the purpose is rightly. Because whenever we say that the purpose is the glory of God through the making of disciples, that is a different mission than the mission to just try to get as many butts and seats in the church as possible. Does that make sense? If one group sees that the mission is make disciples... And another contingency within the church thinks, well, we just got to get as many people in here as possible. We will disagree because we're going about different ends. Those are two very different ends, two very different goals. The call to make disciples means that we are going to do church discipline. Whereas if we're just trying to get me butts and seats, we ain't going to do church discipline. That drives people away. If the goal is to make disciples, we're going to teach doctrine. We're going to have some of those Sundays where our head hurts at the end of the service because we've wrestled with hard things. If we're just trying to get butts in seats, we ain't doing that. Keep everything light and fluffy and happy. There are two different missions going on there. There has to be agreement of the purpose for there to be unity. But also, we we also need to see that agreeing on the purpose doesn't guarantee unity. Because it's possible for a church family to technically agree on the mission, but then be mean to each other. (laughs) And there won't be unity. So a church family has to have agreement of purpose and have loving kindness towards one another. But even that doesn't guarantee that fruit will come. Because it's possible for a church family to technically in thought, agree on one purpose, be nice to each other, but nobody ever actually get out and do any ministry. What God calls us to And what what you see the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, calling the Philippian church to is this. Agree on the one purpose. Live in loving kindness and care for one another and mobilize, rally together for the furtherance of the gospel. This is what God wants church families doing. Part of what we do is strategizing. Part of what we do collectively when we gather, we're here for worship, we're here to know God, but we are also here to to say and decide in ourselves, when I leave here today, I wanna go out there and I wanna honor him. So how are we gonna do that? It's mobilizing. It's deciding on things we're going to do to how we can make the gospel known to our neighbors and then to the ends of the earth. It's that we mobilize to leave these walls and bring the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And friends, the task is too big and the stakes are too high for there to be disunity. Imagine a war scene. Soldiers are fighting and there's a break in the action. And so in the break, the soldiers need to go get refueled. They need to eat to keep their their energy and their strength of. And so imagine a scene where a couple soldiers get into an argument, a quarrel over who gets which candy bar out of the food rations. While they're arguing, one of their buddies dies besides them. What's their officer going to say to them? Boys, get over it. 
get back in the fight because this is too big to quarrel over things that don't matter. People of God, let us decide in our hearts. The task is too big to let quarrels amongst us, potential bitterness and such in our hearts to bring division and disunity. The stakes are too high. I I, I love what is also written here in the book. Look at chapter four, verse two for a moment. Paul himself gives a little bit of a word of correction there. Verse two, I urge Yodia and I urge Sentic to live in harmony in the Lord. <laughs> How would you like your names <laughs> to be recorded in the eternal word of God as getting rebuked for not being able to get along? But do you notice what he says? Live in harmony. Get along. You notice he doesn't hash through all of their disagreement to decide who's right. Though, of course, there are times where that kind of thing is needed. But you know that there are other times where we need to just be told, whatever your part in the bitter cycle, stop it. Stop it. Get along. Be at peace. Love one another. No matter how you have been treated, respond in grace. The stakes are too high. The task is too big for there to be disunity. Souls are dying and you have one life to be as useful as possible. And disunity robs us of our usefulness. God calls the church to unity. Never forget that in John 17, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, whenever he prayed what we call the high priestly prayer, as he prayed for the church down through the centuries until he would come back. And he prayed for us, not cotton candy prayers. He prayed for us the biggest, most robust request. He prayed for our greatest things that we need. Never forget that four times in that he prayed for the church's unity. He prayed for us to be made one, perfected in unity. By the way, following this passage right here, um, we're told how to do that. We're told how to live in unity. We don't have time today to fully flesh all of it out, but I do want to point you to the verses. In chapter two, find verse three, which is immediately after what we just saw there, live in unity. Look what he starts to say there in verse three. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also look also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And look, and then look what happens right after this. He begins to describe the work of Christ. Jesus left the glory and riches of heaven to come here and serve others. Let's imitate. Jesus endured ill treatment where he was treated less than what he deserved. And yet for the glory of God, he did it. Let's imitate. The call there is for us to take a humility of mind, be willing to be wronged, be willing to count others as more important than ourselves for the sake of love and unity. Notice how just again and again, the scripture just constantly points us back to how do we do something? Look at the gospel. How do we understand something? Look at the gospel. How do we do marriage? Look at the gospel. How do we love one another? Look at the gospel again and again. We're pointed to Christ. Well, here's the last passage that we'll look at today. Look at chapter three, verses seven through 11. So much more good meat here that we're just sticking with the theme. Look at chapter three, starting in verse seven. What came right before this, a little bit of context, is Paul listed off his achievements of this world. You know, kind of similar to Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes we've been studying in Sunday school, where Solomon lists off and he kind of speaks to those of the earth and says, you who are living for earthly pleasure, let me tell you something, I know all about pleasure. I know all about riches. I know all about houses and land. I know all about sexual fulfillment. I know all about these things that you seek to live for. And I'm gonna tell you, it's all loss. And it does not lead to the ultimate satisfaction in a similar kind of way here. When it comes to accomplishments of the earth, Paul was one of the foremost. And he lists off some of his accomplishments, not to brag, but then to say, verse seven, but whatever things were gained to me, 
Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He is saying there, your good works will never save you. It only comes as a gift by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He lists off their earthly delights, achievements, fulfillments. And he's not saying that those delights and pleasures are sinful, but he is saying that compared to Christ, they're nothing. He goes on to say that whatever it takes to get more of Christ, it's worth it. Suffering gives you deeper fellowship with Christ. So Christian, don't run from it and don't count it as tragedy. He even calls us in this letter, suffer for the gospel. Now friends, it's, it's likely the case. You and I in this room will never be called upon to be beaten for the name of Christ or to be put to death for the gospel. But we are called to die in another way. You know, as an example, dads, when you get home from work, and you've had one of those stressful days and everything in you is just screaming, I just want to sit in front of the TV and just veg and I just want to, I just want to erase all of the thoughts of stress. I just, want to, I just want to rest, just want to be by myself. And you're not really in the mood to have kids crawling all over you and these kinds of things. That's a moment we're to die to ourselves. We're to die to our fleshly desires. There are children to serve. There's a family to invest in. And there's a word there to, yes, play games and tell stories and be with them, talk with them. But there's also the investment of the gospel. Give them what is greatest. Serve them in the greatest way by showing them the gospel. That's dying daily. That's not suffering for the gospel, but it is working for the gospel. And Christian, we must never claim that we would die for the gospel if we're not willing to bear inconvenience for the gospel. Serving in any ministry is going to end up being inconvenient. One of the greatest responses that a lot of times we hear is we invite people into ministries is usually that, well, I'm already so busy. I've already, it would be so difficult. It would, it would not be convenient because I'd have to get up early or all of these kinds of things. And listen, Jesus never said that it's going to be convenient. That's why he said, take up your cross, deny yourself, die daily, and come follow me. Because we're called to suffer for the gospel. And that includes working for the gospel, bearing inconvenience for the gospel, striving, giving effort and energy and quality and excellence for the sake of the gospel. It's never going to be convenient, but your life has a purpose. And in the end, your houses and land will stand in ash. All your money will have dissolved away and only what has been done for Christ will last. We have a purpose. Strive together for the faith of the gospel. Well, here's the second part. How does all of this perspective apply to us in this particular place at this particular juncture? What application can we draw from these things? L let me raise a few matters of application. Let me start with what I think is the biggest. Number one, we must guard the mission. If the mission is the glory of God by being made disciples and making disciples, then church family, everything we do has to be evaluated in light of the mission. Like building projects, but that goes for everything. Every program, every event, every ministry, every decision that we make has to constantly be evaluated in light of, does this help us fulfill the purpose that we have been given, the mission to make disciples? Because life as a church means a lot of times saying no to things. 
life as a church family, a lot of times means saying no to what could be decent, fine, and even good things. I'm not saying no to sinful things. Sometimes we're saying no to good things. But if they do not help us fulfill the greater mission, then they detract energy and attention from the one thing we have been called to. Be disciples, make disciples. Everything is to be evaluated in light of the great purpose. And you know, I just wanna let you know that even as we make decisions on things like the father-daughter dance, we evaluate that in light in terms of the greater mission. If the day came that that ever became a distraction to the mission instead of a help, we would put it away. Even where we make decisions about that kind of thing, we have concluded that that bond of fathers and daughters aids the cause of the gospel by building those relationships. When we do things like the back to school block party, we don't do it because we get a bunch of people to show up. That's not the end goal of all things. But we believe that interacting with the community to, 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 to help them understand that we are seeking to serve and love you is a help to the mission. Everything is to be evaluated in terms of the great purpose we've been given. And that includes buildings. And there are a bunch of reasons we need to see that. Sometimes church buildings get treated as an object to be worshipped rather than as a tool in accomplishing the mission. You ever seen that? Where a church's whole existence is all about all the time talking about the building, the building, the building. Let me say this for my own benefit, because you do got to understand for the, for the leaders, a lot of time, a lot of attention, a lot of thought has to go into these kinds of things. And so for all of us, and that includes the leaders, we could get distracted into making it more central than what it really ought to be. So pray for us, but let us collectively for the glory of God declare the point in our business is not buildings, programs, events. The point is that the name of Jesus be exalted among angels and men. The church building we're looking at for the future is a tool to that end. Kind of like I would say, you families. Your family does not consist of your house. Like that's not the essence of what defines your family. You can be a family without a house, but it helps to have a place to sleep. It can be a hindrance to your great mission. Parents, you have a mission as well. Your, your mission is similar to the church's mission. Glorify God by you yourself honoring him and to make disciples of these little souls that God has entrusted to you. You have a mission. The definition of your family is not defined by your house, but a house is an aid to the glory of God in a similar kind of way, church family. Buildings are a tool. They're not an object to be worshiped. They are a tool used in the accomplishing of the mission. We can be a church without a building, but it can be a hindrance when there's no place to meet. And it's also a hindrance when there are visitors who want to come and see the reason for the hope that we have and there's not room or it feels too crowded. It becomes a hindrance to the mission. This building nor any other we build will ever be the house of God. We believers are the house of God. The definition of the church is us interacting with one another. And if the day comes when like China right now, this is real world stuff. If the day comes when the state begins to plow over church buildings, we will still be the church. We'll meet out in fields. We'll meet out in the woods. We'll get rained on, snowed on, whatever. We will endure the cold. We will do it to meet and glorify the name of God. But when it is a possibility, the use of tools can be helpful. This is what the church is, and that's what a church building is. No more. But also, friends, no less. Because if it is for the service of God, then it deserves quality, excellence, effort, sacrifice, but not because we're building some sort of modern temple. We've got to guard the mission. Secondly, we've got to guard our unity. How do we do that? By imitating Christ. Each of us must conscious, consciously declare, my opinion does not matter more than others. We must guard one another's dignity. 
that even when there is disagreement, we choose not to go then gossip about one another or ever degrade one another, even in our minds, not even to let bitterness stay in our hearts, the scripture says. That even when a, a little dandelion root of bitterness begins to grow, we reach in and we pluck it out and we refuse to let it continue to grow. We have to guard the unity of the body of Christ. Number three, we must guard against ungodly desires. We need to not let fleshly desires creep in and distract us from the main points. You know, things like wanting too much elaborateness or wanting exactly what I would desire in a church building because this isn't a temple, it's a tool. We also need to be careful that ungodly desires like impatience. So I told you all that at the beginning of our process, I went and interviewed a whole bunch of pastors who went through building projects and I asked them questions like, what would you do the same? What would you do different? What kind of counsel would you give me? The number one caution that I was given again and again was on the crippling nature of excessive debt, which comes from the ungodly desire of impatience of, I want it all right now. We have to guard against this. We have to guard against ungodly kinds of desires. We must guard against foolishness. And we must work for wisdom. We must seek the glory of God and keep our perspective in the right place. We're called by God to believe the gospel, to be saved by the gospel. We're called to be transformed by learning the gospel's treasures. We're called to live lives worthy of the gospel. We're called to suffer for the gospel. And we are called to join in the work of making the gospel known to the ends of the earth. Uh, every one of us in the room have some way we are this morning even needing to join in in a greater way. For some of you, it might be that very first step. That you have never yet believed the message that you must be saved and Jesus is the one place where you will receive that forgiveness of sins, eternal life. Believe what God tells you. Trust in Christ and turn to Christ. Let's pray. <coughs> oh God in heaven, we love you and we thank you. Father, we want to ask for your grace as we have our time of fellowship here in just a moment. Father, we ask your blessing over the food that we're going to eat and, and the time that we spend together. Deepen the bonds of love for one another. Grow us and continue this process, O oh Lord, of making us disciples. But God, also call us to join in the work. Please bless the time we'll spend together today, every part of it, including the meeting we're gonna have. Oh God, please bless us. We pray all this through Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's message titled Gospel-Centered, Mission-Minded Ministry. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.